Hello there. This is Adam Strzok from Strzok Crypto, where we're fueling the future with transformative seed investments. I'm thrilled to join you on the Edge of NFT, your go-to podcast for exploring the most exciting projects in the Web3 universe. Keep listening. Hi, NFT curious listeners. Stay tuned for today's episode to learn how today's guest keeps track of everything he needs to help grow some of the most promising startups in Web3 and beyond. And what kind of Charizard flipping strategies made our guest his first big bucks? Finally, hear about Nike's upcoming Airforia NFT sneaker hunt on Fortnite. And before we go on, don't forget that our Outer Edge LA event recently returned to LA March 20th to the 23rd, 2023. You, though, can now still catch up on all the discussions, presentations, and more. Just head on over to watch.outeredge.live. Pull out your email address and enter it. You'll have access to over 60 captivating conversations and performances. Binge watchers are welcome. Netflix, watch out. We'll see you inside. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features Adam Strzok, the trailblazing founder of Strzok Crypto, a venture capital firm ushering a new era by infusing innovation and value into every interaction. As the dynamic founder and managing partner at Struck Crypto, Adam is no stranger to the entrepreneurial world. Prior to Struck, he co-founded Long Island Brand Beverages, a CPG company later acquired and listed on NASDAQ with a legal background at Kirkland and Ellis, one of the world's leading law firms and accolades from Forbes 30 Under 30 list for venture capital and business insiders, rising stars in venture capital, Adam has a rich tapestry of experience. Struck Crypto is the cornerstone for entrepreneurs with a vision to revolutionize the world. Focused on seed B2B investments, Struck Capital Partners with audacious founders leveraging data-driven insights to craft transformative technological innovations. Their commitment to provide more sweat equity per dollar invested, standing by you as the most hands-on investor on your cap table. That sounds pretty appealing. I like that. Adam, welcome to Edge of NFT. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. And I think it's one of those fun stories of co-creation in terms of how we all got here, right? Struck graciously participated in our closing party for Outer Edge LA. And we had a great time together and have continued to sort of build that relationship and chemistry. We did something together for LA Tech Week. And now we have you on the show. So the full circle continues. There it is. Yeah. Excited to talk today. Absolutely. And I think your perspective, just in light of the macro dynamics right now in our industry, is going to be really helpful and grounding for our audience. But to kick things off, Struck Crypto really is all about transformational technologies that have the potential to revolutionize industries. Would love to sort of get the genesis story of this venture and your mission, mainly for our audience. I know we've talked about it a little bit, but I think it's really interesting. Yeah, no, 100%. I think for myself, generally, I've always seen myself as an opportunistic investor. And when I started to understand 
the world of Web3 and decentralization and sort of what it really meant, especially for me as a former immigrant in South Africa that moved to the United States because I couldn't really trust my government. I couldn't trust my sort of fiat-based currency that was experiencing hyperinflation. It really spoke to me, you know, the concept of having a decentralized sort of currency that could be transferred from a P2P perspective and didn't rely on sort of a central authority or potentially even corrupt banks for its legitimacy. So I think the, the founding story of Satoshi and Bitcoin really spoke to me. And then when I kind of started thinking about, wow, you have Ethereum and smart contract platforms, and you just realized that this is a form of core technology that should exist. So at the time, I was already running Struck Capital, which I would call our Web2 fund, mainly focused on B2B, horizontal and vertical SaaS. I was approached by a large fund in LA, and they chose to amend their LPA, turn themselves into a fund to fund and cut me the largest check in their history saw me as sort of a young next generation manager that they wanted to sort of back me to get exposure to crypto and sort of the Web3 universe. So I sort of took that momentum, raised a little bit more capital. That's sort of how Struck Crypto was born. We've basically been operating this space institutionally since 2017, been through a ton of bear and bull cycles, and been lucky to say that we've partnered with some of the best founders in the space and really watched companies go from sort of the genesis phase all the way to escape velocity. That's really awesome. And One of the unique parts of being a founder who's gone through some sort of acquisition is knowing what it takes from a original team and having the constructs to be able to bring things from start to finish. As as great as it is to be an entrepreneur and go through the roller coaster that is entrepreneurship, it is challenging to be able to create profitable businesses that go on to have a lot of success. And so one of the fascinating aspects of your investment strategy involves identifying successful Web2 companies and then seeking out their Web3 equivalents. You call this skeuomorphisms. Can you kind of elaborate on what this unique approach is? Yeah, for sure. So the concept of skeuomorphism is actually more born like out of a product design perspective that if you're creating a new product and you understand that your users are familiar with maybe a different product, but maybe you can sort of take a new product and remind them of an old product and it would just make it easier for them to sort of get through that J curve and actually start using your product in an intuitive way. I think what's happened now sort of in the crypto space is they've sort of taken that concept and taken it to the next level. And essentially what that means is if we find companies in the Web2 space that have been very successful, could we in theory fund their Web3 decentralized counterparts that would maybe remind users of these Web2 companies, but it would make it easier for them to sort of, again, solve that cold start problem and really start using the product in a more intuitive manner. So... I think for us as an investment firm and a company that's investing in the space, we like to look at Web2 companies that have sort of gone all the way, have a very sort of dedicated and highly engaged unit user base with very stable unit economics. And we say, hey, is there sort of a Web3 counterpart that we could back that's also solving a big problem that's very specific to Web3? So a really good example of that is we're investors in a company called Liquify. Liquify is basically building the Carta for Web3. We've done a lot of work with Carta and we've kind of realized they're very, very focused on the Web2 space. They have no sort of blockchain developers or engineers on their team. And yet there's a host sort of Web3 companies out there that are really looking for not just quote unquote cap table management, but also really want to understand how to sort of launch a token and then sort of engage investing schedules where they're actually distributing these tokens to investors, to employees, and to do so in a compliant manner. And also they're in a situation where they're the odds are really stacked against them because everything in crypto, because it's all an immutable ledger, you can't just call a centralized authority and be like, whoops, gave you too many shares. Can I get it back? So it really has to be done perfectly. So for us, we felt like this is a concept we understand. Carta as a company has really hit escape velocity, multi-billion dollar enterprise value. 
So we found two incredible founders, Robin and Oliver, and we said, hey, why don't we back you to create the Carta for Web3? So that's sort of how skewmorphism has played out from an investment perspective. And we've got a few others as well. We've got a company called Notify that was started by Paul Kim, who was the director of product at Oracle. And then he was actually very high up on the product team at Circle, the creators of USDC. And then now what he's created is called Notify, which is like the Twilio of Web3, operating under the assumption that you're a DAP or a protocol. You've got users all over the place. Some of them are on Telegram, WhatsApp, Signal, WeChat, or on the DAP specifically. They're engaging with your DAP through essentially what are anonymous wallets. And if you're actually trying to show engagement, you've got an ecosystem proposal, you want people to vote, how do you actually get them engaged all at the same time? So Twilio is sort of this like messaging plumbing infrastructure where a DAP or a DAO or a protocol generally can send a message and it can hit their users everywhere all at the same time across sort of web two and web three. And you're really starting to see that engagement. And then they have a lot of data and analytics around it, which when you think about sort of the lifetime value of your customer and how to sort of cross sell them or upsell them, it's really important to understand where they are. And that's what Notify does. So again, just another great example of huge companies that have hit escape velocity in web two, whether it's Twilio or Carta, and really finding their sort of native web three equivalents and really investing in them. Yeah, I mean, I love that use case around hitting people everywhere because I feel like these conversations about exchanging contact information have gotten so complicated because people have all their own playbooks for how they want to be in touch with people depending on what country they're in, what tools they're more comfortable with. No, I only use WhatsApp to talk to my best friend or, oh, I only text with my mom. It's very random these days. And it's really tough, right? Because there's also then like Discord and you have all these like major messaging apps that want to keep their users there. But then as like a DAP or a project, you're like, well, hold on. Like, I want to be able to speak to my users on my own terms. So totally echo your sentiments there. Man, I remember the good old days of just, you're calling me or not. You just call the phone or you don't. That's all you had. (laughs) Are you home? Nope, you're not home. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So Clearly, Adam, you've got a very insightful perspective on the sort of capitalist markets and things like that in general, going from Web 2 to Web 3. It'd be really interesting to kind of hear some of your perspective on the way the space is moving. You mentioned the skeuomorphism strategy as a way to kind of access the possibilities of Web 3 through new endeavors. We've also got these kind of ideas about maybe it's time for the big brands to be getting into the Web3 space, or we all need to be working on mass adoption. That's the thing to focus on, or it's all about gaming or augmented reality or whatever. What's your kind of general perspective of the space and the effective strategies being applied, or maybe not even effective? What strategies are being applied these days? What are the kind of trends and fads? Yeah. It's funny, like I actually think the concept of skewmorphism, when you think of it more from a design perspective, is actually like a spirit that I think the the crypto and Web3 community really needs to channel if the goal actually is to get to a point that we achieve, quote unquote, the holy grail of mass adoption. So for us, we still feel like there's a number of sort of UI UX issues just inherent in the use of Web3 technology and specifically like self-custody that just makes it really, really difficult for like your mother, your grandmother to ever even touch this. And in theory, the way that crypto and Web3 is really going to sort of achieve 
the ability to propagate to the masses is you almost need to be in a place where if the core technology exists, it's being used in such a seamless manner that people don't even realize it. So I still think as a firm, we're very, very focused on what are just the major gating items that's preventing people from really using the technology. So for us, like we're focusing a lot on wallets as well, right? Because there's a new ecosystem proposal that was just adopted in the Ethereum community called ERC4337. And essentially what that's doing is it's solving some of the UI UX issues inherent in non-custodial wallets that just make it very, very difficult for the average user to even understand, let alone use with a high degree of confidence. Things like, oh my God, if I'm cussing my wallet and I lose my private key, like, have I lost everything? How does that work? So there's a company that we invested in called Soul Wallet that actually has a tremendous amount of support from the Ethereum core community, including Vitalik himself. He works on the project and actually messaged about them very recently. But essentially what they're doing is they're using ERC4337 to introduce what are called what is the concept of social recovery and guardian? So basically now for the first time ever in a purely non-custodial manner where literally you have no changes at the protocol level and it's extremely safe, you can now actually nominate a mother, a brother, a sister to actually be a quote-unquote guardian. So then if you're in a place that you actually lose your private key, that can be regenerated. Your wallet can reaccess with another private key in a way that's completely safe. So like, for example, Ledger, which is one of the leaders in sort of non-custodial wallet hardware, they recently came out with a proposal where they were like, we can actually find a way to store your private key so that if you're in a position that something happens, we can help you regenerate the wallet. And like all the like crypto maxis freaked out, right? Because they don't want a centralized authority holding those private keys because that really sort of defeats the purpose of non-custodial ownership in the first place. But what ERC4337 does with guardians and social recovery is allows you to get that same experience, that user experience of regenerating or reaccessing the wallet in the case of losing private keys, but not in a way that puts those private keys in the hands of a centralized authority. So that piece of core technology innovation from our perspective is completely groundbreaking. Another thing that ERC4337 introduces is what's called beyond just account abstraction is you can now be in a place where you're actually paying for gas. So if I'm using Ethereum, I can now pay for gas with an ERC20 token like USDC, a stablecoin versus Ethereum itself, which is also just very groundbreaking, right? Like for the average person, if they want to use the Ethereum blockchain, why do they have to quote unquote pay for gas in Ethereum? I should be able to pay for gas in whatever I want. So that also is like very revolutionary. So we just think generally, even though Bitcoin and the concept of Bitcoin came out of the 2008 financial crisis. There were odes to the 2008 financial crisis in the genesis block of Bitcoin. So for some people, they're like, this has been quote unquote out there since 2008. This is not new technology anymore. But from our perspective, it's still extremely new. And there's still like very, very material UI UX challenges that are preventing mass adoption. So that's definitely something that we pay attention to from an investment perspective. I think the other thing I will mention too, and I think a lot of the Listeners out there are probably very aware of just all the regulatory risk that's happening right now. Unfortunately, regulation is always very slow to catch up to core technology innovation. And I think what's happening now is you just have a very almost like what seems like a heavy handed approach to crypto regulation in the form of like the SEC suing Coinbase and suing Binance and all these things. And it creates a lot of fear in the ecosystem, even from an investment perspective, because you're like, gosh, is this a utility token? Is it a security? 
what are the laws? How do I mitigate my risk? How do I mitigate the risk by investors? I think from our perspective, that's why we, we love investing like in companies like Liquify that really make it easier to just not be the lowest hanging fruit. And even in times of gray area, just be as regulatory compliant as you possibly can be. And I think from our perspective, we're a registered investment advisor. So we hold ourselves to the highest standards of compliance. And I think that's why we've been able to navigate these bull and bear markets and have been around for a long time. We fundamentally understand what a meritocracy should look and feel like, and we know how to generate alpha for our investors in a legitimate way. So when something feels too good to be true or looks too good to be true, we shy away from it. I think that's for a lot of the sort of crypto adopters going forward, they're going to have that mindset. I think that's actually healthy long term. Yeah, there's a lot you just packed in there that I think is important and I appreciate your perspective on where we're at. So I think from there, it would be natural to sort of talk about the future and what does that next generation ecosystem actually look like? Some of the underlying infrastructure like Soul Wallet would, could be part of it. But when we kind of look at this sort of idea of mass adoption, or maybe the next generation ecosystem isn't quite mass adoption, but it's some degree of adoption beyond what we have today. What are the key features or trends to look for? And on that note, I just spoke with someone yesterday that's doing a really interesting ad tech project with a major league soccer game. Is that the type of thing that we're talking about here? And does the word Web3, does the word NFT just disappear? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think there was, I don't know how many months ago or quarters ago it was, but like when Reddit sort of started playing around with NFTs and all of a sudden there was just a ton of action in a very short period of time and they shied away from the term NFT because for whatever reason, there's just a lot of negative sentiment associated with non-fungible tokens, either just in, in terms of like what that term actually means. One of our portfolio companies is Mythical Games. They raised $150 million from Andreessen last year at over a billion dollar valuation. We put a million dollars into their seed round. We were their only investor in the seed round. And I was their first board member. And what's been really interesting for me is sort of just understanding what the gaming use case can be as sort of that beachhead that can actually result in mass adoption for Web3. And I think when I spoke with the Mythical team, what they would point out is you've got these massive games like Fortnite that are these very large virtual worlds or quote-unquote metaverses, right? And you've got people with this quote-unquote in-game currency that care a lot about their virtual status. And because of that, they're buying these, what they would call skins, but they're buying these quote-unquote limited edition skins so that when they're playing their virtual characters around this virtual world... They want to say, hey, like, look at my really cool limited edition shoe or my really cool costume that I'm wearing, or my really cool weapon that I'm using. So what you kind of realize is gamers and just sort of gaming as a beachhead, it has a massive amount of users and traction that intuitively actually understand a lot of the, the sort of virtual ethos that's inherent in crypto and Web3 generally. So I think for us, from an investment perspective, but also just as like a user myself, we really see gaming as sort of a major opportunity to proliferate and bring Web3 to the masses. But I think if you speak to the founding team at Mythical, what they'll say is, is we want an immutable ledger. We want to correlate these skins to NFTs. We want to create these secondary marketplaces. We want to have like a future of work concept where people can actually start generating very material income from these in-game purchases, selling them to other users. But we want to do it in such a way where like nobody has any idea that there's powered by the blockchain and like no one's calling it a non-fungible token. So that really is the critical sort of component here is in our opinion, there's massive markets that exist that are 
quote unquote, like their first thinking principles are already virtual to begin with, which makes a lot of sense for virtual currency or virtual goods, virtual things, you know, non-fungible virtual limited edition things that are on an immutable ledger. It makes a ton of sense. The issue is from our perspective, there's just been a really horrific experience, transaction hashes and non-custodial wallets and all these things that just make it really difficult. So if you ask me what I think is sort of that next phase, I think it's going to be a situation where not only are ledgers completely interoperable, but you have these sort of large audiences of like virtual first thinkers that are using blockchain and cryptocurrency, but doing it in such a way without knowing it. And I think like that's what's really critical right now. I agree. Having that seamless experience is going to be what brings the masses. And just to go back to one of your first points about the gaming piece, being a gamer myself, what I think has been the biggest hesitation for a lot of people coming over from the Web 2 space over into Web 3 is just the friction that you were talking about. Like when they can get to a point where they're playing a Web 3 game, they have no idea we've made it. And I know that a lot of the space is headed in that direction. And even thinking about to what was that first moment where asking me questions about Web3 was during the NFT craze of 2021. It was the first time people got their interest peaked and asked more questions. And so one of the things that you brought up was Mythical Games, but you also have a really unique relationship with Protocol Labs. Could you delve into a little bit of more of the specifics of that collaboration and what it means for both parties? Yeah, 100%. So we think Protocol Labs is one of those really unique projects where they're actually something like a major need and they're truly unique. What we do not like doing is sort of funding, oh, there's this DAP that like has created a lot of enterprise value on Ethereum. Well, now we're just going to fund the exact same thing, you know, on Algorand or the exact same thing on Avalanche. That to us is not interesting. For us, we see Protocol Labs as as super unique because essentially what they've accomplished with Filecoin is this is sort of the first time ever that you can actually have distributed storage all over the world and you can incentivize people through a token to actually share that storage. And if you can put yourself in a position that you have sort of the reliability that if I'm really needing to get that piece of data right away and I can get to a point that it's as reliable as like AWS or like an AWS S3 API, all of a sudden now you've completely democratized access to storage and you're going to be like a thousand X cheaper than what it costs right now from a storage perspective for AWS. So I think sort of the first version of Protocol Labs and Filecoin was just getting them to a place that they amassed the largest number of sort of distributed storage providers across the globe and the amount of storage that they've sort of amassed in their ecosystem, it's insane. There's something specific where like they could store the, the amount of data that's on Facebook like for the next 10 years. Like it's a massive, massive amount. The next version now of Protocol Labs is, okay, so now we've got all the storage, we now need users, right? So why are people going to actually be using Filecoin? What's the purpose? So what they launched recently was the Filecoin virtual machine. So essentially what that's doing is it's bringing like an EVM equivalent virtual machine or smart contract platform to all of this distributed storage capacity. So that for the first time ever, if you actually have like major blockchains like Ethereum, they're not going to be in a place that they are stored either through something like IPFS where it's unreliable because you don't have a token incentive structure to actually make sure that the data is retrieved in a way that matches your SLAs or worse off, you get a quote unquote distributed L1s and the majority of their the majority of their data is sort of like AWS, which then defeats the purpose of it in the, in the first place because that's a centralized sort of authority. So we think that Filecoin sort of taking that next step in their evolution and launching a virtual machine, it sort of really opens up a scenario where you have truly distributed storage and truly distributed compute all in one. So for us, that's super, super interesting. So one of the things that we have at Struck is we have actually our own venture studio. So we have Struck Capital, our Web2 fund, Struck Crypto, our Web3 fund, and then Struck Studio. Struck Studio, we've had the privilege of being backed by 
the equivalent of Union Square Ventures, Revolution, Chicago Ventures, Great Oaks, Liquid 2, US Venture Partners, a bunch of tier one venture funds. And basically what I've been lucky to do is team up with people a lot more accomplished than myself. And all we're doing is building. So we will look at sort of all the information asymmetries that we get across our capitalist, our crypto. And we feel like there's a major opportunity. We'll use those sort of information asymmetries to really sort of pivotal role in our ideation and validation sessions. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're starting to build. So We've had a really, really strong relationship with the Protocol Labs team. We understood that there was this very special moment in history where they were launching their virtual machine. So we've gone to the Protocol Labs team and said, hey, what do you guys need us to build? Like, what are you looking for, right? And I think from their perspective, they have a very robust ecosystem. They would love to have sort of like tier one products and engineers that are Web3 crypto native actually building various picks and shovels that they really need to like hit escape velocity. So like one of the things that we've been playing around with is... Why don't we actually build the equivalent of the AWS S3 API, but instead of it being AWS, it's going to be Filecoin. And then all of a sudden, we can actually go to Web2 users as an ICP, as an ideal customer profile buyer persona and say, hey, literally just with a few lines of code, we're going to switch your API out from AWS to Filecoin. And now the next thing you know, it decreased the storage cost by 1000x and we're rapidly increasing adoption of sort of uh, Filecoin more generally and bringing them to a total addressable market that they're not covering, which are Web2 developers. That's the kind of stuff that I mean is just really being able to jam with Protocol Labs, understanding they're at the special place right now in their history. And we have the ability through our studio to really build. And then we have those information asymmetries because of our Web3 fund. So it's a really just like perfect combination. So we've been super enthusiastic just about Protocol Labs. They're a super strong team. They're mission-driven. And it's been a privilege just jamming with them. And hopefully we can uh, ship some stuff together. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of groundbreaking stuff is going on. Hopefully Jeff Bezos doesn't listen to this and get too competitive around stealing business from AWS. But we're looking out for you. What else besides stealing business from AWS among the collaborations <laughs> is going on in your future? You've had some great successes so far. What are you looking forward to either already in the pipeline or just things that you're planning on exploring? Yeah, I think sort of just like more generally, if I don't limit it only to the sort of crypto ecosystem, even though there's so much excitement there. I think on the studio front, we've just got like a number of really cool concepts that they're in product development. The founders have been hired. We're going to market. And for me to just be in a place that I'm saying, listen, as a former operator, I'm not just like in my ivory tower barking orders to founders as a VC. I'm actually like the CEO of the studio and we're struggling for product market fit every day. It just keeps me fresh and innovative and really like understanding the founder persona, especially how difficult it is right now to build in like a post-COVID remote hybrid world. So that the things you're doing at the studio for me are super, super exciting. We've got one concept called Unleashed, where we're really trying to sell into and democratize access towards the digital nomad lifestyle. So we like to look at very long, very broad horizontal marketplaces like Airbnb and say, what buyer personas in there with very sort of material monthly growth rates are not being serviced by this marketplace because it's too broad. And we believe that the digital nomad that says, hey, like for $2,500 a month, I want to be able to sign a master lease and live anywhere from Nashville to Denver to Portugal to Lisbon. We think that like that type of a company should exist. So we've got a concept called Unleashed where we're basically, you sign one master lease with us. We've got inventory all over the world. We layer on top of that these really high margin services like a clutter integration to help you with your move. We can do your taxes for you and get you domiciled in the most advantageous jurisdiction. It's just become this incredible thing where we have people coming to us and crying and saying like, 
wow, I'm all of a sudden now in this like post-COVID remote world. And instead of just like sitting my boxers all day at my apartment, you're helping me move to this fabulous place. I can stay there for six months and then go somewhere else. So just the stuff we're doing on the studio side is super exciting. And to me, it's sort of an amalgamation of everything the firm has accomplished, both in Web 2 and Web 3. Because again, we see where the puck's going. We understand where there's opportunities for innovation. We now have the ability to actually build it ourselves. And what's also been really cool is because it's such a tough macro environment and because a lot of founders, even really strong ones, they know how difficult it is to build on their own. We're getting founders that like are rock stars still wanting to build with us at the studio. So for me, it's a super exciting opportunity to maybe just take advantage of just what is right now a really tough fundraising environment. I had another question, but I'm like, how do you keep up with all that and all those phase shifters mentally, right? I think as a multi-industry venture capital firm that's also doing some of your own building, you have this unique opportunity where you have asymmetric alpha, not too dissimilar from a media company like us, but you also have an overwhelming amount of alpha to process. Like, how does your brain work, at Adam? <laughs> yeah, I've also got two daughters on top of that, a five-year-old and a one-year-old. So there is a lot going on. I think for me, like, sometimes I talk to institutional LPs and they're like, oh, like, you're kind of all over the place. What I tell them is, in my opinion, everything levels up to the same thing. It's all early stage. It's all getting from zero to one. So... For us, when we were sitting there and saying, gosh, we've seen these companies that have, we led the seed round and all of a sudden they're worth crazy amounts of money. And when we invested with them, they were pre-revenue and we were really with them sort of at that ideation level, helping them find product market fit. And yet because we were a quote unquote VC and not a founder, we only own 10 or 15% of the company. It just made a lot of sense for us to go a degree earlier and start building ourselves. I'm lucky that I've got a really strong team around me. I've got incredible people with a lot of talent that share the mission that I do that are also making sure the train stays on the track. I think at this point at Struck as a firm, it's really important for me just to make sure that everyone understands the totality of our social graph. And I just want to make sure that everybody's super comfortable sort of collaborating. There's a ton of cross-pollination. So I'm not looking at sort of like every single function of code, right? But what I am making sure is, is gosh, if we've got an, an incredible product person and they're really needing to speak to a top tier UI UX designer, that I can make that match and bring everybody together. So it's been really, really important to just make sure that the capital and crypto teams are really benefiting from the studio team. And then ultimately, of course, vice versa. That's really the role that I'm playing. But generally for me, I love early stage. I love zero to one. I want to be in that place that when these founders become huge, they can come back and say, wow, like you were really there in the beginning when no one else was. That's sort of like the interpersonal, almost emotional aspect of what I do that I really love. But listen, you're not wrong. There are sleepless nights and there's a lot going on. But as long as I can do it with a yeah. smile on my face, I'm going to keep pushing. No, I mean, and like, I just have an image of us having drinks and then like all of a sudden you're in a, crisis prevention meeting with one of your founders, and then you're back to having drinks. That's like Adam in a nutshell, guys, just for the audience to understand. There it is. There it is. <laughs> oh, staying busy and innovating. Outside of your own portfolio, which is extremely exciting and a lot of really cool projects within there. You know, what are some other projects that you've been keeping tabs on in the Web3 space? Oh, very, very great question. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, like we're very focused right now on sort of the intersection of blockchain and AI. I know everybody says that, but we do think that there's a really big problem in AI right now, just in terms of like black box and like, where does this training data actually come from? We think that there are opportunities. You have a lot of these, again, broad horizontal LLMs um, like OpenAI that maybe suffer from ChatGPT, that maybe suffer from hallucinations and have some accuracy issues. And we think there's, there's real opportunities actually to make a shift 
from not just LLMs, but to more specialized TLMs. So change large to tiny, right? So we've been focusing on in the Web3 space are companies that can actually help other companies create proprietary data that's proprietary to them and then store them on chain. So the concept of sort of solving the black box problem for vertical specific LLMs is something that we're really, really interested in. And then I think generally the crypto concept can come in where you're using a sort of token or incentive sort of model to incentivize individuals that can create that proprietary data to actually create it and store it on chain. So there's actually a lot that blockchain and AI can do together to solve a lot of the problems just associated with sort of the black box nature of artificial intelligence and AGI more generally. And we think that's going to manifest in sort of like vertical specific LLMs that we would call like TLMs. So any project that's focused on something like that to us is very interesting. We've also been, again, paying attention to a lot of projects that are solving security issues in blockchain. So from our perspective, in order for us to really achieve L1 interoperability, we don't think bridging really works because it just opens you up to a ton of smart contract risk when you're taking a token and you're essentially depositing it in one chain and then having a wrapped version of the token on another chain, you've basically just like doubled your smart contract risk because you now have to have two smart contracts that you need to rely on. There's a lot of new bridging technology that is sort of a manifestation of account abstraction, the ERC-4337 that I just spoke about, that would make things a hell of a lot safer, which would then make interoperability much easier, which we think is really critical. So people are not in a place where they're like, oh gosh, my token just transferred to this chain, but I don't have that wallet. And now like I can't use it. That's again, one of those UI UX issues that just destroy the user experience. So from our perspective, blockchain AI, immutability, data modes, that's always something we're going to be paying attention to. Then getting away from AI and just some of like the more fundamental issues, anything security or UI UX focused, we're also very interested in. Makes sense. And it's interesting to hear what you're interested in. And it will also be interested to hear some fun facts about you as an individual in our next segment called Edge Quick Hitters. You have questions about blockchain? Like how big of a block can you chain without throwing out your back? Or if you received that chain letter, how did you block it? And does blockchain taste better, barbecued or deep fried? <laughs> Luckily, you don't have to ponder these quandaries alone anymore because Blockchain Training Alliance is here to answer them and also train you in real world blockchain issues that will impact your business's bottom line and oriented future forward along the ley lines of the most important tech humanity has perfected since harnessing atomic energy. If you're into those sorts of things, Blockchain Training Alliance is a top leader in the field, counting among its clients IBM, Microsoft, Disney, Morgan Stanley, and many more, and offering a wide array of technical and non-technical courses. Whether you're a computer neophyte training for an incredible career in this new space, or a coding expert honing your skills, Blockchain Training Alliance will help you steer your ship home safely, filled with treasure. Arg. So hurry and sign up for the Blockchain Training Alliance course that best fits your needs at blockchaintrainingalliance.com. Use discount code EDGEOF for 50% off and start your next block today. Edge Quick Hitters is a fun and quick way to get to know you a little bit better. 10 questions and we're looking for just a short single or few word response, but feel free to expand if you get the urge and you get a new car. Are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. And let me just commentate here. Adam didn't flinch. He didn't sweat, but he did grab a little sip of water just to make sure he's fully prepared. There it is. Perfect. 
Uh, but we're not sure that there was an alcohol in there, which may help with the flow of things. As you kind of implied earlier, Josh, it's like, oh, have a couple of drinks and get back down to the stress. And <laughs> it doesn't look like he has an alcohol problem, though. No, no, it's water, I promise. H- it's not an alcohol problem, it's an alcohol solution. <laughs> Adam's always on his game. Sounds good. All right, let's hit it. Question number one, what is the first thing, Adam, you remember ever purchasing in your life? I mean, it's got to be like something candy focused. I was in South Africa. South Africa makes the best chocolate ever. So it's probably a piece of chocolate called Pop Deck, which is like milk chocolate and then also white and milk chocolate all together. And it's just a real fun situation. So yeah, it's definitely chocolate. Can you pretend to have a South African accent? Because they do not detect anything. Yeah, I could do my South African accent right now. I could literally turn it on with a switch. Anytime my wife is mad at me, I just turn it on and it's like a different person. <laughs> nice, it wasn't me. <laughs> All right, question number two. What's the first thing you remember ever selling in your life? I used to like purchase like basketball cards, Pokemon cards and things like that. I think Pokemon cards, like first edition Charizard or something was like the first time I actually like made some real money selling something. Man, I totally missed out on that racket that was Pokemon cards. I collected the wrong things. Clearly, like wrestling magazines, not worth anything whatsoever. What is the most recent thing you purchased? I just purchased my uh, nephew a pair of Jordan 1s for his birthday, black and red Jordan 1s. So that was really cool just to see his reaction. He's a big fan. And yeah, I mean, Michael Jordan, he just keeps on going. So yeah, a pair of MJ Jordan 1s. Yeah, absolutely. You saw that movie Air, I assume? Yeah, I I thought it was amazing. Done really well. Yeah, great, great movie. Highly recommend it to folks. All right. What is the most recent thing you sold? I guess as a firm, we sold some crypto a few hours ago. So I'll say that. (laughs) See, past 30,000, you got to take some profits a little bit, a little bit. Nice, man. Well, what is your most prized possession? I think my most prized possession at this point are are my two daughters. I know my wife would be jealous by this because our daughters are a byproduct of what we created together. It's just been so insane. I recently brought my five-year-old to New York for the first time and just like seeing her experience New York and like actually understand it. It was pretty amazing. So yeah, I'm going to put it on, on my two daughters. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I don't think your wife would be mad at that. But if you could buy anything in the world, we're talking digital, physical, service experience, et cetera, and that's currently for sale, what would it be? Hmm. I'm like a real car guy. I just love cars. So there's going to be some like limited edition, classic Aston Martin that would allow me to like really call myself James Bond. I would probably want to buy. Very nice. I'm a car guy myself, so not mad at that response. If you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, I think understanding that adversity is a big part of success. You have to not be afraid to fail and you got to just put yourself out there. So yeah, work ethic plus being okay with like adversity and like being punched in the mouth and like understanding that, hey, I learned a bit from that. Maybe that was actually a good thing and I can get back up because I'm stronger. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a classic conversation, but it's an important one where the mainstream media loves to portray the plight of the entrepreneur in terms of either everything just went as planned or it was terrible and tragedy and disguised as a journey. And I think the reality is it's more that everyday adversity that sort of challenges us entrepreneurs and fires us up at the same time. So I appreciate that. I told one of my studio founders that like early stage startup life, it should feel like whack-a-mole. And like, if it doesn't, there's a problem. Like it should, (laughs) you're dealing with fires every day and that's just part of the journey. 
Yeah. And the idea of sort of these pivots, I mean, there's micro pivots that happen all the time, right? In the world of startups. And I think with AI technology adoption, the global challenges, it just accelerates that need to sort of play the game of whack-a-mole and just embrace it. Makes sense. All right. So on the flip side, Adam, if you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, or if your wife could, what would it be? (laughs) I was literally going to say, I think my wife thinks I'm a little like OCD. I like things like pretty clean. So maybe that's it. I think I spend too much time like wiping water around the sink. (laughs) So she probably want to eliminate that. But then when I had my daughter and she saw that my daughter had some similar tendencies, she realized it was genetic. It's not my fault. So But yeah, I probably want to eliminate a bit of that. I would say that's kind of like fantasy of every wife, though, is cleaning in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's what I'm saying. Like, come on. (laughs) I wouldn't complain about that. (laughs) All right. Last couple of questions here. These are relatively straightforward. So question number nine is, what did you do before joining us on the podcast? I spoke with my CTO and partner at my studio, Mike Montero. He was the co-founder and CTO of Resi. So if you ever made a restaurant reservation, he built that product. Before that, he sold Crouches Oracle. He's just an absolute genius and an amazing person. So yeah, we had uh, one of our cash-ups where we just talk about what's going on and how can we stay on the same page and help one another. That sounds great. Glad you have a chance to catch up. All right, question number 10. What you going to do next after the podcast? I actually have my trainer coming to the house next. I'm going to do a little one-hour workout. So that's something that I use sometimes on Tuesdays or Thursdays. It just keeps me fresh in the middle of the day. And then actually then I can work into dinner or maybe even past that and just feel energized. So his name's Presto. He's amazing. If anyone wants his contact information, let me know. And definitely a big part of any success I've experienced from a health and physical perspective. Nice. Well, I can say Richard and I have the pleasure of having worked out together during Outer Edge. Well, we wake up early and get our hustle in our hit training. What kind of training do you do? Yeah, so he's very like full body. We'll do like chest and arms one day. We'll do legs the other, back and shoulders. And I've got a good gym in my house that I built in my garage. So it's very efficient. It makes me feel good mentally, physically. So yeah, and what I've realized is further during the week, I have to plan it in like an actual appointment, like an actual meeting, or else I'll just never do it. So the concept of like seeing it on the calendar and knowing that someone's coming there to my house, it motivates me. And I've got like a really strong rate of like, I'm very consistent is what I would say. That's great. Yeah. Same thing for me. I just have a recurring meeting on my calendar and for twice a week. And then I get the other workouts in on the weekends. I have not yet figured out how to work out three times during the work week, but it's so critical to have it on the calendar. And then, you know, worst case scenario, you have to move it one day or another. At least you're moving the appointment up or down. You're not sort of pretending it wasn't there, right? Totally aligned. And I think for me, it's just like, there's always so many things going on and like, you get tired. It's like, if I didn't have someone like pushing me and had in the calendar, it just, it'd be very easy to be like, ah, not today. And then it's like, ah, I haven't worked out in a month. Awesome. Glad you're going to be able to do that afterwards. And I'm sure some people listening might want to get that info off of you. But the final question, the bonus question of the day, you have been in the VC space for a while doing various investments and you've seen your fair share of businesses. What is the business that got away? Ooh, very, very good question. I think at the time I like it did get away and I was really upset, but like I think it was still a good outcome, but maybe it's gone a little bit in the other direction, but it's bird. Me being in LA and like the scooter craze and 
I knew a few of the execs and like I had an opportunity to invest, kind of just felt like this may be too capital intensive or Uber's going to eat their lunch. And then like a really short period of time, they just created like crazy enterprise value and like literally changed the whole like landscape of like topography of like Santa Monica and like a place that I was every single day. So that very much felt for me like as an LA investor to like miss out on that deal. I was not happy. Then they kind of went in the opposite direction very quickly. So I think it's all, all about sort of the T-value of that temporal lens. But um, yeah, that was definitely one that got away. And it's one of those ones where on the way up, you're like, wow, this is going to change the world. But then you're like, wait, this is really hard to scale. Yeah. One of our mantras is we want to invest in businesses that become easier as they scale, not harder. <laughs> so I think Bird is one of those, just it's a logistical nightmare. Very, very difficult. Does it have a nice ring to it? Kind of that Seinfeld Newman ring to it. It's like you see the scooter. Bird. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, that was really fun. Thanks for participating. You were also very prompt and quick with your answers as requested. So appreciate that. So that means we do have some time for hot topics. Let's hit the hot topics of the day. Number one, Dmitry Cherniak's The Goose NFT sells at Sotheby's auction for $6.2 million. Well, that doesn't sound like a bear market for NFTs to me. Let's get a little bit more on that. Generative artist Dmitry Cherniak's Ringer's number 879 NFT sold for a hammer price of this 5.4 5.4 million and a full price of 6.2 million, inclusive of Sotheby's buyer premium on Thursday during a live auction, blowing past estimates during a time of slower market movement, often referred to as the goose for its likeness to the animal, was the top lot during Sotheby's most recent auction of NFTs from the Grails collection seized from a bankrupt crypto hedge fund. Three arrows capital piece was estimated to sell for a mere 2.3 million. Lots of great stuff rolling in here. I mean, Sotheby's participation in the NFT market has been very strong and it seems like it continues to be. Adam, have you ever bought anything from Sotheby's? Plan to anytime soon? I have not. Definitely something I want to do at some point. I think what I'll say to this is like Ferrer's Capital, glad they were able to seize it and glad that it sold for more than estimates. So uh, yeah, maybe the bull market's coming back. Yeah, you never know with these things, like what happened there. I will say that there's definitely something interesting about the fact that it was sold for more than it was originally bought from, right? So we do see in fine art, a steady state of appreciation historically. And if you categorize it this way, then yeah, it makes sense. On the other hand, you wonder if there was very affluent folks in the industry that were trying to like make a statement about like helping those that were impacted by Three Arrows and also sort of supporting some of the best fine art. I don't think we'll ever really know the answer. Only the person that bought it knows like in their heart why they spend that much. It's a very personal decision. But for me, that thought crosses my mind. Yeah, without knowing like the nuances of the auction and how it went, I'm not sure. But if there is that good Samaritan, like crypto native art lover out there, like, I want to meet this person, then let's do some deals. It does say the collectible was purchased by three AC co-founders, Sue Zhu and Kyle Davies in August 2021. Oh, no, actually, that was originally for ATP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they originally bought it and then it was sort of put on the auction block. Okay, got it. So that was not bought back. A quote here from Michael Buhana of Sotheby's head of digital art and NFTs. 
told Coindesk, where, where the article comes from, that the piece is a, a major highlight of his portfolio and one of the most significant works from the generative art movement. So, and now even more significant given the sale. Let's hit the next one, guys. Nike teases upcoming Airphoria NFT sneaker hunt on Fortnite. I love that headline, Airphoria. That's great branding. NFT sneaker hunt. That sounds just fun, right? Hope there's some sort of augmented reality involved. So this move here would potentially mark a massive opportunity for Web3 adoption and by traditional gamers, given that Fortnite has had more than 242.9 million active players over the past 30 years, according to Active Player. In a brief accompanying video, Fortnite's and Nike's Air Max logos are featured front and center among a backdrop of floating clouds in the sky. So yes, shoes. It's been interesting being in this NFT space kind of from the beginning of the run-up as we launched the podcast back in March 2021 and just noticing how all of these traditionally collectible items entering this space and taking their places and roles and seeing the opportunities, some of them being a little bit slipshod out about it, some of them being more towards the forefront. But yeah, the sneaker, the sneaker movement, it's hard to remember a time where sneakers were not collectibles, right? <laughs> well, you said you bought those Air Jordans for your nephew, right, Adam? Yep. Yeah. And is that just for sporting around town or is your nephew like a sneakerhead collector kind of thing? He turned eight. So I think he's collector, but like just getting started, but definitely has like an appreciation for like the Air Force Ones and the high tops. So he was super stoked about it. He also just like broke his finger and his cast was black and red. So like I planned it perfectly. So that was good. But yeah, I mean, generally for me, when I think about all the Jordans I used to own and like I would take them on the playground and like had no idea that they would become these like incredible collectibles. So hindsight is always twenty twenty. but I love this use case. It makes a ton of sense. And I would be a huge fan of them partnering up with Niantic and doing some augmented reality. That would be super, super cool. Yeah, I think the other cool piece about this is back when I was growing up, a lot of the ways, and I think this is probably still true for a lot of kids who go to school, one of the ways that you kind of show your individuality is through your shoes, especially for kids that either go to like a private school or have some sort of school where you have to wear a uniform. Usually the only thing that you could kind of show some individuality on were your shoes. So now in a lot of these games like Fortnite, the way you show your individuality is through buying skins or a certain dance or whatever it is. But now you're potentially able to bring that individuality again through shoes again. I think it's a really smart way for Jordan continue to do its branding to the next generation to keep wanting to show that individuality, even if it's not in the physical world, into the digital world. Sorry, I'll just say one thing is Mythical has a game called Blankos and they were doing all these drops of like Burberry and all these major designers, right? And like you had enthusiasts that loved the brand and all of a sudden now we're playing the game and they're accessing a whole new total addressable market. But then you also just had a lot of gamers that are like, oh, this would be really fly if like my character could have these Burberry branded like high tops. So totally echo your sentiments there. Yeah, it's interesting too. Am I remembering this correctly? I feel like Fortnite and Epic Games have not traditionally been so friendly to the NFT concept, despite the potential overlap. Am I remembering that right, Josh? Yeah, yeah. there was a moment, right, where there was said quote by a certain sort of leader in Epic, I think, about the NFT industry and whatnot. But from going to different gaming-related events over the last few months, I've come to appreciate like the relationship between Web3 and gaming through a different lens, which I'm sure, Adam, you may have a perspective on as well, which is that 
the gaming industry are industrial pioneers that are essentially creating gamifying stories. And what they're really doing is they're using every trick in the book to engage people and make things sticky. So when there's a new tool out there that could create more engagement, they want to test it out. They want to try it. They want to try everything that can make a game a more engaging, consistent experience. And their users have a constant thirst for more engagement and more creative ways to be engaged. So I think that Epic and a lot of these gaming companies took stock of that. And they're like, they're not sure where it's all going, but they don't want to be left behind. You make a good point, Josh, about the power of gaming as an industry and sort of like consumer understanding, right? Because if you think about it, much like Facebook usage and things like that, they really have the ability to apply the scientific method and statistical techniques to just optimize, optimize, optimize on the experience. It's really, there's an incredible potential there. So with that point, Ethan, if they do that, if they're taking such a scientific data-driven event to like creating fan enjoyment and they're into Web3, they see the potential. I think that's a really good signal for the industry as a whole. Were you going to say something, Adam? I echo your sentiments. I don't really know why there's such like a backlash in the first place. I think maybe it just got like a little too hypey. And I think for some of the sort of like core, core gamers, they didn't want to introduce like a gambling like component maybe into the game. But generally, from my perspective, like for Fortnite, you have billions of dollars in revenue generated by people sort of purchasing a virtual currency to purchase skins, to show sort of differentiate themselves and show the sort of virtual status. For companies like Nike, it's all about like limited edition shoes and collectibles. So it just makes so much sense inherently. And it's nice to see this sort of move. And I definitely agree. They wouldn't be doing this unless they tested the hell out of it. So I think this is definitely like a something bullish to highlight. Yeah, agreed, Josh. Good point. All right, let's head on out of hot topics and start to wind things down here. But before that, we always love to give a moment for a potential shout out. Hey there, NFT space cadet. Let's zoom in on the globe from outer space today to Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach, LA. Let me show you a cosmic tech beacon that shines out among the bustle of fashion, art, and food there. It's a thriving software dev, data science, and design studio known as AE Studio, where scores of the sharpest minds have come together to help founders and execs create software and machine learning solutions that are not only profitable and increase our agency as humans, but that give us that warm, fuzzy feeling that elegant tech so wonderfully does. AE's breadth of talent allows them to build anything from instillvideo.com it's a health, fitness, and wellness app that makes your chakras tingle to award-winning brain-computer interface solutions that could quite literally bend our minds. Oh, and keep an eye out for Token Runners, their NFT white-label marketplaces, as well as our highly anticipated NFT drop, Boomer NFT. Now, for all you DGENs who strive to shed the cummerbund and pearls comes a jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring partnership not seen since the heyday of Shaq and Kobe, it's called Edge of AE Studio, and you can find out all about it at edgeofae.com. That's right, this full-service, soup-to-nuts, end-to-end, whole-enchilada NFT service can help you, yes, you, Randy, launch your NFT project. Edge of NFT and AE Studio have come together like Voltron to get your project in gear so you can hightail it straight to the moon, stardom, and maybe even your own private yacht. Go to edgeofae.com to find out more. That's edgeofae.com. 
Actual results may vary depending on moon landing location, domain of stardom, scale and model of yacht, as well as weather scale model of yacht or actual yacht. Adam, you got anybody in, in your world or connections, admirations that would be worth a shout out on this episode? Yeah, I, I mentioned him briefly, but I'll just highlight him one more time. I'm going to shout out John Linden from Mythical Games, CEO and co-founder, former Activision studio head. We were their first ever investor, pre, only investor in their pre-seed round. They raised it over a billion dollar valuation. One of the reasons why I think John is so cool is he got up and spoke at my annual summit last year and they had Michael Jordan actually invest in their most recent round. And he put up a picture of Michael Jordan and Larry Bird was like shooting over Michael Jordan or guarding Michael Jordan. And he put my face on Larry Bird. So that was like super cool because he thinks I'm, nice. you know, a great basketball player, a great investor. So I give him a lot of props for that. But I think most importantly, if we're looking for, you know, projects and leaders in the industry to really allow crypto to reach sort of mass adoption, I think gaming and sports is going to be an intersection that everyone needs to pay attention to. Little Games just recently launched NFL Rivals. So they're the first blockchain-based game ever with the NFL. And it basically puts you in a position where you have sort of like blitz, like Nintendo 64 blitz arcade-style gameplay. But you can participate in drafts and own all of these skins and own all of these even teams. So they're really bringing that sort of like in-game virtual economy to the NFL. And again, they're pioneers because nobody else has done this with a major sports league like the NFL. So I'm just so enthusiastic, not just by John and his co-founder, Jamie, but the totality of the mythical team. And it's been a real pleasure to support them. And I think what they're doing not only, you know, is great for the average gamer, but it's huge for the Web3 industry. So I wanted to uh, just give him a shout out. Yeah, absolutely. We had Jamie on the show recently. Actually, not that recently. I don't know. Time flies in Web3. But we knew they were cooking up something big with NFL rivals. I've been a John Madden sort of a fan all my life. I'm really excited to play this game and sort of see what's going on over there. So it was a nice reminder about what they're doing. Yeah, you can check it out on iOS and Android in the App Store. And I will say they are outselling and outperforming Madden's uh, iOS game. So it's been a really nice run so far. And I think they're just getting started, especially because we're in the NFL offseason. Very cool. Yeah, great point you made about use case there with sports. I don't think it's necessarily competitive to this, but similar idea. One of our sponsors, we have a segment here, Swoops. And it's basketball on the blockchain. And, you know, we can own our NFT players and play them. And it's been really fascinating to watch them explore the possibilities and totally agree that it is. It adds some fun. It adds another element of fun to the whole system there. All right. Let's start to wrap out here. The last obligatory and enjoyable thing we should do here is to make sure we know where to find out more. We want to know more. A website, social handles, stuff like that. Where you want to send us, Adam? Yeah, so you can go to strutcapital.com where you will see everything about basically the three ways that we partner with founders across capital, crypto, and studio. You can also find us on Twitter, at strutcapital, at strutcrypto. We're all on LinkedIn. We post very frequently. So yeah, anybody that wants to hit us up, just info at strutcapital.com and we'll definitely do our best to respond. We're in LA. We're throwing events all the time. I think Josh, as you know, so... We also love to private dinners around town as well, just with individuals that really just want to see the LA tech ecosystem flourish. So if you're a founder, an investor, an enthusiast, whatever it is, there's definitely going to be ways to get in touch because we pay attention to people that are passionate about what they do. Love it. Great parting words. We have reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. Thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventurers on this starship. So Invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to Spotify or iTunes right now. Rate us. Say something 
awesome. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. Look us up on all major social platforms by typing Edge of NFT with no spaces and start a fun conversation with us online. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. Thanks for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.